1 Corinthians 7. Paul now addresses questions that they wrote to him about. And I am aware that this morning's text has a sensitive nature to it in a congregation of mixed ages. I do intend to keep everything PG in rating. Euphemisms engaged. So we look to the reading of God's word if you join me in prayer. Merciful Father, it is from you come all the blessings of the light. And Lord, even in our darkness, you are still near to us. We praise you for your goodness. We thank you for your holy word delivered to your church, for the faith which is conveyed it from one generation to the next. And Lord, we ask that you would grant us that same faith today to receive your words of life, that we too might convey the faith in Christ to the next generations, all in abounding joy and love. And this we ask through Christ our Redeemer. Amen. Beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. The word of the Lord. Nuclear power is... Truly amazing as an energy. With it, we have modern aircraft carriers that can circle the globe for 20 years without refueling. With it, we have Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Terrible destruction and ruin. The Lord has also given to humanity an incredible force in human sexuality. A tremendous fuel for intimacy in marriage and a terrible devastation in sin. There are few such things that have such a night and day reality to them. Our great poems, love songs, and romantic stories are alongside our worst nightmares, abuses, and injustices. So double-edged that some have questioned God's wisdom in bestowing it upon us. And here, Paul, he wades in unafraid and unabashed to deal with real people in real life because that's just what the Bible does. Having addressed issues of immorality, he now takes on some questions of marriage. Balanced and practical, he avoids the pitfalls that many in Corinth had fallen into. Marriage is given by the Lord for the mutual care and concern of husband and wife. It's to be kept holy and pure, and physical intimacy is not only to be shared and maintained, but to be encouraged and to thrive. The beautiful picture of union with Christ that all believers have through faith is pictured in the union of husband and wife. And because Christ has freed us from the dominion and the destruction of sin, we have been freed to walk in the holiness of marriage, fueled by the fullness of intimacy. Now, as we look into this text, a couple things to keep in mind. Paul is addressing new Christians who have come out of an entirely different culture than a Jewish one. 
in the Roman Greek culture that they were from, arranged marriages were the norm, and often the woman was much younger than the husband. Marriage was for things like political purposes, alliances, as well as for producing children, maintaining the family. And it was very common for men to seek pleasure outside of their wives. Some scholars have also indicated that divorce was also a very common feature of this world. Now, it seems that some in Corinth were advocating that pleasure was to be found outside of marriage. Paul rejects this. And it seems that some were advocating that actually sex is restricted to marriage, but not really for pleasure, just procreation. Paul agreed with the first part, but rejects the second. He's just told them to flee immorality. Chapter 6, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit with whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Marriage is a holy institution given by the Lord for all humanity. It is the only proper arena for glorifying God with human sexuality. Yet we also know that quite often this arena is filled with failures, fights, frights. And from the very start, let's just all acknowledge that all of us past a certain age are marked by sexual sin and brokenness. There are not many who make it through life without at least some radiation burns. For some, it's been ground zero. Others, it's varying distances away from it. And when we speak of struggles in this area, we also mean we fail a lot in this area. If we weren't failing, it wouldn't be a struggle. The good news, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is completely fine with walking among our ruins. He walks among our ruins to rescue, to restore, and to revitalize. And Paul begins by answering questions that they had written about. He says that in verse 1, concerning the matters about which he wrote. And then in quote marks in your Bible, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, You'll notice we use quote marks, and almost everyone agrees that Paul is just simply quoting back to them the question they had. Ancient Greek uh, didn't put quotation marks in the text. You just had to know by context. Sometimes we're not sure then, where's a quote, where's not a quote, and What we have to do is use more clear sections of Scripture to help us in less clear. Paul has written a great deal about marriage and morality in other places, and he's clearly not saying it's good that you don't have relations with a woman, particularly in marriage is his context. The older NIV translation, it said in this verse, it's good for a man not to marry. Uh, Later translations corrected that because that was misleading. Literally it says, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, and that's a euphemism. The ESV captures the meaning quite well. Some were advocating, as we mentioned before, anything goes. What happens in the body stays in the body. It's the spirit that matters. The body doesn't matter at all, so have at it. And others were advocating actually a a kind of marital celibacy or little marital contact outside of procreation. Paul is saying both of these attitudes are wrong. And he first expresses this in a negative rationale. Verse 2. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 
if you're married, cultivate physical intimacy. Otherwise, one or the other may be put into unwanted temptation. The Bible is a very real book. As I said before, we are given both a ceiling and a floor ethic. Paul is giving us a floor ethic at the moment. To be clear, both are responsible to remain faithful even if there has been dysfunction in this. You may need to seek help if necessary, but the call is always to faithfulness. For example, neither the husband nor the wife is responsible for the other's struggle with pornography. We are enticed by our own evil desires. No one makes us sin. We own the sins that we have without blaming the other person for being the cause of that. At the same time, cultivating a healthy marital intimacy can reduce many kinds of temptation. I appreciate Puritan writer Thomas Watson. He said, it's not having a wife, but loving a wife that makes a man live chastely. And Paul now shifts to a positive rationale. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. There's a wonderful mutuality in marriage. There is a giving one to another. And he says in the reason, verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Everyone at this time would have agreed with this. In the Roman Greek world, the head of the home had authority over everyone under the roof. His wife, his children, his slaves. It was just presupposed that the man had unrestricted sexual freedom. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to say something that would be utterly shocking to a Gentile group. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That would have been a jaw-dropper in ancient Rome and Greece. Here's a, a quote from two... New Testament scholars, I like how they put this. Speaking of what Paul just said, he said, it communicates negatively the husband's obligation to refrain from engaging in sexual relations with anyone other than his wife. Everyone else is hands off, only her. Positively, his obligation to fulfill his marital duty to provide her with sexual pleasure and satisfaction. And they go on to say this. To our knowledge, the only other place a similar thought is recorded prior to Paul is in the poetic notes of the mutual belonging in the Song of Solomon. Nobody was saying this anywhere outside of the Christian church based on the wonderful sexual ethic given to us from Scripture. The mutuality between one and the other, you see that throughout the Song of Solomon, which which speaks to that relationship, but beyond that. Song of Solomon 6.3, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine, and it expresses that mutuality. The Judeo-Christian sexual ethic comes from the word of God, and Paul enters into the middle of a Gentile culture and blows the doors off its sexual ethic. In his letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, 
that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul's not afraid to call it out. Say, you're coming from a culture that's completely messed up, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. Both husband and wives are called to fidelity, to faithfulness, to mutual self-giving. Chapter 13 of Corinthians, the love chapter, that's undergirding all of this mutual love. And Paul goes further. In verse 5, do not deprive one another. Same word used earlier for defraud. Don't defraud one another in this way. He continues then his carefully nuanced pastoral care. Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Notice this is not a unilateral decision, but an agreed upon one and temporary. The expectation is that there's to be this kind of communication in marriage. Prayer and fasting may be something a person decides to do for a, a specific time. And they acknowledge that they're giving up a blessing of the Lord to pursue the Lord in a more focused way. But if this degenerates into frustration of the other spouse, then it becomes counterproductive. Verse 6, Paul says that it isn't a command, but a concession. He's not insisting that anyone abstain. And then in verse 7, he adds, I wish you were all like me, meaning single, But each has his own gift from God of one kind, one and one of another. Now, we don't know for sure if Paul had a wife at some earlier point. Would have been expected as a Jewish male and also as a member of the Sanhedrin. But there's no way to say for sure. It's clear he doesn't have one now. And even as he mentions this in chapter 9. But he is saying that he has a gift of celibacy. And with it, he's free to serve the Lord without distraction. One commentator reminds us that it's not a marriage versus celibacy issue, but the gift of a positive attitude which can make the most of celibacy without frustration. Now, we need to be careful about how we use the language. Because someone is single does not mean they have the gift of celibacy, of singleness. If someone's single but doesn't want to be and would rather be married, then it is a burden of celibacy. It's a suffering to be endured. And we need to recognize that, the difficulties of that. Nor is Paul saying that marriage is not a gift. It is a gift. But it comes with limitations for the very reason that we no longer belong to ourselves. Paul is glad that he's not limited in this way for the sake of the gospel. I wish other people were like me in this way. But Paul answers their question. He's not afraid to go right into the mess of life. There has not been a time in history where human sexuality has not been seen as both blessing and curse. Now, when we covered Ephesians 5 in marriage, my counsel to you at that time was to read the section that applied to you and to stop there. What we want to do is to read the other person's part to them because we think they're not living up to it. Husbands, wives, oh yeah. Read this, sweetie. Yeah, you too. And we want to because they're failing in some way. Read your own section. 
apply it to you. And in the same way, in our hurt and frustrations, we can read the part we think here that the other is failing. Scripture is very clear. Both husband and wife have spiritual, emotional, relational, and physical needs. Both are to be met through each other. There's a mutual giving across the board in this. And to that end, we are called then to fuel intimacy. So, recapping, in the Roman world, the wife was, for legal marriage and children, pleasure to be found outside of marriage. And Paul comes in with a Jewish view, a biblical view, and he says, in marriage, you delight only in your legal wife or husband. But it's a delight in. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. So what we hear in Proverbs 5 with the father instructing his children, drink water from your own cistern, meaning the marital relationship. Flowing water from your own well. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That's the biblical picture of what marriage is to be. And the question then is, how do we take eros, which that Greek word for affection, sexual attraction, that kind of love. We get our English word erotic from it. How are we to take eros as a fuel for our relational oneness? First, we recognize it's never just physical oneness. It includes all these other dimensions. Relational, emotional, psychological, physical. All of these come together in that oneness. Paul has already quoted from Genesis 2 in chapter 6 that the two shall become one flesh. Never just physical. Mutual love undergirds this oneness. Now, Regarding what I think of as an error that has been out there, at least in some circles of Christianity, I just say this regarding oneness. The woman does not become less after she marries. She does not give up her gifts, her dreams, her aspirations to get married to a man. The two take all that God has given them and together they forge a new oneness in such a way that each person is enhanced by the other, not a loss. There is something new that takes place, taking the wonders and joys and gifts that God has put together to make something greater for both, not just for one. Only in God's design can two become one by mutually giving themselves to the other. You are more you when you stop focusing on your needs and look outward. You are less you when you turn it all around and make it about yourself. And another error I think we suffer from today is that we try to make the marriage relationship do too much, carry too much weight. And expectation, a false one, that a spouse must meet all of our needs. 
It can't be done. We were made for community, for camaraderie in a social way. We have friends, family, co-workers that we share our relationships with. And any couple that tries to pack all of that weight onto one or the other will break. You can't be everything to your spouse. You weren't made to be that. We are shared in a social context. And when we have pulled that away and we try to make this one person be everything to us, no relationship can sustain that for very long. And so what that means of many things is that you and I, if we're married, are to become students of our spouses, recognizing limitations. The challenge of mutual love is that we're not made equally. That's also a modern error. Equality is trying to blanket everything out. We're not equal. We're mutual. Men and women differ a great deal on how sexuality is expressed. And so that means it requires the hard work of being students of one another. And by all means, it can be scary and vulnerable work, but also joyful work. A good friend of mine, uh, he said this publicly, he and his wife both, so I'm not saying something out of turn. He goes, and she agreed, was, oh, the first few years of our, our married life was awful meaning sex together. Oh, it was just awful. Oh, it was awful. And I love the candidates of that because there's a recognition there that two people coming together with these differing places that they're starting from can be difficult and hard work. Some people, it's wonderful and joyful from the start. And I I think we need to know that and expectations of people who are newly married. uh, It takes time to get to know one another this way. It takes work. It takes effort. It's heart work. And things that contribute to some of that problem is sometimes we have created this expectation that if you withhold yourself before marriage in purity, which I'm affirming, that then you will get this on the other side. That God will reward you with Good behavior in a wonderful sex life. No. (laughs) Those two things may not be corresponding at all with one another. You, You remain pure because God calls you to purity. It's a gift in and of itself to be holy. To spare yourself from the devastation and the ruin that surrounds us. God would spare you from that. It doesn't mean I gave, you know, withheld here, so I'm going to get blessed here. I have no idea what God has in store for you or the spouse that he gives you. It may be because of your maturity and growth and grace that he pairs you with someone who comes from a very broken background. Because you can bear it. Maybe not. But don't tell our young people, do this and you'll get this. Do this because it's right. Honor God with your body. And if you're married, pursue one another. There are different stages of life and it changes. We all recognize that. 
health concerns come into the mix, age comes into the mix, having children, the, the very joy of creating children causes that not to be a joy anymore. At times, like the body is will, or the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Little kids running around. It's like, how do we reestablish that? It's it's just effort. It's a priority. And nobody gets it balanced right. But that's what we're called to. And as we age, we express this in different ways than when we're younger. But either way, the goal is that the, a marriage relationship is moving together in its relational component of intimacy, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. That this is a growth together. That God intends to be a picture of Christ's love for his bride, the church. And the good news is that when we think of this, some people are like, man, this is amazing, yes. And others are like, oh, this has been so broken and messed up, I don't even know how we can, this can even be there. The gospel's hopeful. Jesus removes shame. Jesus cleanses guilt. Jesus restores what is broken. He helps equip us to step into a vulnerability that's difficult and hard. That's the good news of the gospel. Paul is talking to a culture that is completely whacked out. Not afraid to come in and say, this is the beauty of marital life. Knowing that it's going to be a train wreck at times for these people to figure this out. And we look in our culture today and it's a train wreck, people. And yet here we are with the picture of the gospel into our married lives that we are able to express this kind of love from a man and a woman in a totality of a relationship to bring glory and honor to Christ. Pray with me. Father, as we come before you, we are so grateful for the good gifts that you bless us with, even as we recognize how we have so misused them. And Lord, we would pray that you would continue to move us by the truth of your word to the the joy set before us in our relationships one to another at every level. And Father, I pray particularly for those who are married that you would encourage this type of intimacy to flourish, to blossom, to bear much fruit so that Jesus would be honored. And Father, we pray and ask that you would indeed remove shame, cleanse from guilt, grant forgiveness where we have been sinned against, Lord, and where we have sinned against others. We pray and ask this all through Christ our risen King. Amen.